Hi, I'm your host, Susan Nay. Welcome to the podcast series, HR Inside Out. It's a series designed to help you demystify HR and the human resource processes. We're going to talk about people management and get the goods on and see how all this stuff works. You're going to hear from everyday heroes and get their perspectives as we touch on a wide variety of topics, topics that impact us in our work and in our work environments. You'll find nuggets for your treasure chest of learning. Hopefully you'll discover insights for your personal and your professional growth. I'm glad you're here. I suspect it's because you want to be the very best version of yourself, your personal best, and that you get understanding these systems and processes will help you on your journey, on your path. You ready to dare to soar? Want to join me at flight school? Let's do this. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, welcome to the podcast series, HR Inside Out, Demystifying HR and People Management. My guest on today's podcast is Paul Harrietha, co-author of the book, The Invisible Rules. What's really holding women back in business and how to fix it? Welcome, Paul. Thank you for saying yes to being here with us today. Oh, my great pleasure, Susan. Thank you so much for your support and uh, the opportunity to discuss the book. This is going to be fun. I'd like to first tell a little bit about you, if you don't mind. By all means. There. So Dr. Harrietha is a career executive and a consultant who specializes in global leadership and change management. During his 30-year career, he's consulted for a wide range of leading international organizations, including PepsiCo, Honda, John Deere, Royal Bank of Canada, Eddie Bauer, Mobile Oil, and a range of associations, unions, and not-for-profit organizations. Most recently, Dr. Harrietha was Chief Executive Officer of the Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement System Sponsors Corporation, also known as OMERS. It's the design arm of a $100 billion pension fund servicing almost 450,000 active and retired municipal employees in Ontario, Canada. Wow, that's a big job. In this key role, he was responsible for ensuring that the plan remained sustainable for future generations and that strategic decisions were being informed by strong governance practices. Prior to joining OMERS, Dr. Harrietha was a senior partner and head of the communications and change management practices at Eckler Limited. And that's a leading Canadian consulting firm. He served as chairman of the executive board for Abellico Global, a network of more than 30 independent consulting firms operating in 20 countries around the world. Wow, you have a lot of experience. <laughs> it's currently... a polite way of saying I'm old, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. He's currently chair of the advisory board of the Niagara University in Ontario and the founding principal of the CAPS Leadership Group. He received his PhD in leadership and policy from Niagara University, his MA in industrial relations and HR management from Keele University, his MA in English from York University, and his honors Bachelor of Arts degree in English from Queens, also very well educated. Your current research interests include advancing women in leadership, leadership diversity, culture transformation, and employee and member engagement. With regard to your current research projects, I understand that you're currently working on a biographical novel inspired by the remarkable life of Barrington Francis, the former Canadian Commonwealth and World Featherweight Boxing Champion. I can't wait to learn a little bit more about that from you. And that your current teaching interests include global leadership, organizational effectiveness, change management, human resources, and business communications. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I'm absolutely thrilled that you've agreed to join us on today's podcast. Absolutely gonna, thrilled to be here. Sorry to I'm interrupt. Gonna, no, no, no. I'm just, I'm going to start by just, when I read your book, it took me, took me back many years. I, at what point was asked by the telecommunication workers union, and they represent the TELUS employees in, in Western Canada, to be chair of their affirmative action committee. Now, our report contained a great number of recommendations. 
recommendations that did not sit well with many of the male delegates that were lined up at the speakers in front of me and the affirmative action committee at the podium. I remember that so very vividly. Now that was 1976, that was 45 years ago. It's truly sad that there are still these invisible rules and the need for individuals such as yourself to help ensure this critical issue is dealt with. Can you tell us a little bit more about your own journey and the reason for your interest in eradicating gender inequity, finally? <laughs> well, and hopefully we can move the, the needle just a little bit uh, as we move forward. So when I tell people about the book, they invariably ask a pretty blunt, but I guess reasonable question. So given all the social justice issues that I could have tackled, why is a white male ex-CEO in his late 50s interested in gender equity in the workplace? And the truth is, it's a very meaningful issue for me. Uh, my interest in gender equity was actually inspired by my wonderful wife, Mary, and her experiences as an aspiring leader in the early 2000s. So while working at a pretty cutthroat consulting firm back in the day, Mary plateaued professionally at a senior management level for an extended period during her mid-career. And this all despite really consistently superior performance reviews and promises for future advancements. Mm -hmm. And she, like so many of her female colleagues, watched as male peers, less qualified and younger in many instances, were promoted to senior leadership roles based, it seemed, on potential and self-promotion rather than proven performance. Mm. And it was a very frustrating and I think soul-destroying time for Mary and a lot of her colleagues. And it, it's little wonder that we see so many talented women self-select out of the pipeline, and they did at that time, continue mm -hmm. to. Now, others like Mary kept pushing and ultimately achieved senior leadership status, albeit at a different organization. So it's a good news story from that perspective. It's a testament to hard work and perseverance, but it's safe to say that Mary's path to senior leadership took way longer than it should have and took way more effort than it needed to have and certainly would have had had she been a man. So when the time came for me to write my PhD thesis, I decided to tackle that gender equity issue head on and to explore based on Mary's experiences, two pretty fundamental questions. One, why do women remain so badly underrepresented at the top of corporate Canada? And two, how can we fix the situation? And that's the basis for the book. Wow, I'm so glad you did. Now, you, you talked in your book about four big biases that, that you experienced in your research, uh, working with, I believe it was 50 senior executives from from a wide variety of different organizations and sectors, um, but the things that they indeed were continuing to face, and you named them, prove it again, the tightrope, the maternal wall, and then you seem to combine the tug of war and the sting of the queen bee. Can you give us a little bit of an overview on, on each of these? Sure, by, by all means. So again, we, we set out to ask those two fundamental questions and, uh, and to get the answers, we just went straight to the source. Uh, my co-author, Holly, and I interviewed 50 female executives, including some of the highest profile leaders in the country. And we're thrilled. These leaders were extremely generous with their time and were wonderfully candid. And so these biases we talked about come out of the interviews. So based on their, those discussions, Holly and I identified four consistent gender-based biases that simply make it way more difficult for women to achieve leadership positions uh, than their male colleagues. And we call them the four big biases. You've named them, but the prove it again is this notion that men get promoted for potential while women are judged on performance over a sustained basis. Uh, they invariably have to outwork and outperform their male colleagues over time. The second is the tightrope, which is this need for women to walk a fine line between likability and leadership. If women are too passive in the workplace or communal, they're often dismissed as unleaderlike. But if they're too assertive, they're dismissed as unlikable or worse. The B word mm -hmm. raises its head from time to time. <laughs> Again, this is something men don't need to worry about. They can be self-asserting. 
Mm -hmm. is the maternal wall, the, the biological reality, and the, but the disproportionate responsibility that women traditionally have for managing the household, which simply makes it difficult for them to commit fully to the job. And, and uh, they're often judged as uh, uncommitted as a result of that. And then mm -hmm. finally, the tug of war, which is this tendency for women to, to judge how other women act and dress in the mm. workplace, which can create considerable anxiety and unfortunately competition between women for uh, those jobs. And that fosters the queen bee syndrome as, as you had identified. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what we've determined is that as long as these biases persist, uh, persist, women will remain underrepresented at the top of most Canadian organizations. I think you know that you know women only hold 10% of the highest paying jobs in this country, uh, which is, uh, not, is certainly inequitable by any measure. And I think there's some reasons for that that we'll get into in some of the other questions. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's interesting as I, as I listened to you and as I read the, the book, and I just, again, it took me back to when I worked at the British Columbia Institute of Technology in the 1980s, when I watched an incredibly capable woman who was placed in the acting vice president role for a period of, I think it was about 18 months. When the position was finally posted, she didn't end up being hired. And from everything that I'd observed, she'd done a really remarkable job over the time that she'd been in the acting position. I believe she left the organization shortly after that, and I sure didn't blame her. As one of the 50 women that you interviewed stated, she too was just one more disillusioned defector from the traditional leadership pipeline. And again, this was several decades ago. Uh, it's not, this isn't recent. Um, we lost a great leader from our ranks and it's obviously continuing to occur at a great cost to our organizations. Um, I now wonder when I read about the four big biases, whether that's likely what she was experiencing. Can you share more about what your, your research has shown you? Yeah, and obviously we can't talk definitively about that circumstance, but it's it's um, it's extremely common. Uh, we've as we look at this, we see that um, you know there is something toxic in the pipeline that causes women at a certain point in their career to question whether they can actually achieve success or their sense of career success within the organizations in which they operate. And many of them simply choose to leave the organizations, either to set up their own shop or to, to join early stage companies or to move into less traditional um, work environments, not-for-profits and other elements. Um, so that's not surprising here. And it is a, a basically accumulation of those biases that we see that simply make it difficult for women to, to achieve the, uh, the aspirations that they have. Now, what we also see, and I thought was very interesting, you talked about acting or interim uh, VP, and, and that tends to be uh, uh, title that women wear. Um, you don't often see interim male or acting male VPs. They're given the jobs. When you see interim, you're really talking about temporary. And I think what we're seeing here in many cases at those levels is something that we call a phenomenon that we discuss in the book, which is the, the glass cliff, which is a tendency to promote women to senior leadership positions often on a temporary basis during times of crisis or poor organizational performance. So a few leaders, by the way of example, were in, in the book were named to CEO positions in their respective organizations during the 2008 financial crisis. Right. The perception is that they would deal with the crisis and probably fail in the process. Um, so the optimistic view is that women are appointed to these leadership roles during difficult times because they possess particular skills or traits that will make them well suited for dealing with the crisis and managing a turnaround. And there's a perception in many environments that this appointment uh, of non-prototypical leaders during crisis sends a positive signal to employees and shareholders of the organization mm -hmm. is really committed to progressive policies and practices. In this sense, the female leader becomes a symbol of positive change. Mm -hmm. But I think the cynical and I, and I would suggest more realistic view is that women are appointed to these glass 
uh, cliff positions as potential scapegoats rather than effective change agents, and that they're likely to be replaced by men once the crisis runs its course, hence the temporary or acting role. And if the leader succeeds, great, everybody wins and they can go on and have wonderful careers. But if she fails, as is likely given the mess that she's inherited in many circumstances, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. failure then lies with the leader rather than the organization. And uh, again, this is an issue that women face that men typically don't. Interesting. And I want to take us to another part of your book, which kind of carries on nicely from this, where you, you talk about, and I quote from the book, said, you know, you talk about this not being pur purposeful. It's mm -hmm. just, it's not even recognized what, what's necessarily happening within the organizations. And I'm going to take a quote from your book. What we firmly believe most male executives still fail to understand is that the current game remains largely rigged in favor of men. It was designed by men for men based on historically male attitudes, perceptions, and behaviors. And you admit to being culpable yourself in the years that uh, you were in, in your senior, senior leadership positions and that it's not intentional. Um, it would be really helpful for our listeners if you could elaborate on what you mean by that current game and what it looks like in real terms. Hmm. Well, in some respects, we get to be a little optimistic here uh, as we Yay. look forward. <laughs> so the reality is, is that the game was created by men for men. It sort of rewards the behaviors that we identify uh, as largely masculine, uh, masculinely defined leadership traits, assertiveness, aggression, self-promotion, uh, competition, all those things that women are socialized not to be. Uh, it's, and so when I talk to to women, the, the whole issue was, is they're not afraid to compete with men. They're happy to compete with men. They just want to compete with those men in an environment where they're treated equally, where mm -hmm. they have an equal opportunity to win the game. So this will all change when we begin to start treating gender equity as a strategic business issue rather than a social justice issue. And I think there is an opportunity to see some movement because I, as I said, uh, you indicated was, was guilty of many of these things. I thought that as a leader that I was progressive and uh, as the husband of an aspiring female executive that I was attuned and, and was committed to appropriate practices. But what I realized when I started to do the research with the book is that I, in fact, was unaware of my biases and I made all the mistakes from a hiring and performance uh, management and promotional perspective intended to lean to the good guy rather than the aspiring women. And so many times we sat around the boardroom table to pick our next partners. And we said, well, you know, he's been very assertive in, in his desire to be a partner and, and she hasn't stepped up. She hasn't said anything. So I guess she's not interested, mm. um, which of course was absurd when you think about it. Of course she was interested. She was mm -hmm. just working within her socialized environment. Mm -hmm. So, the positive here is that I, I firmly believe based on those experiences, my experiences as a CEO and a board chair and the input provided by the leaders that there is no overriding conspiracy to sustain, sustain mm -hmm, this current mm -hmm. patriarchy. In fact, Janice Fukakuza, who is the retired CFO at RBC, notes in the book that in the heat of the battle, there's simply a tendency to hire the most convenient candidate rather than the best possible candidate. Mm. And put another way, uh, as I was guilty of, we tend to hire the candidate that we most easily relate to. Mm. Like hires like, and that's true for women as much as it is men. Mm -hmm. It's just based on pure numbers alone, men tend to, tend to dominate the, the, the hiring decisions and the promotion decisions. White hires white. And so the bottom line is that I think most male executives are simply unaware of their gender specific biases as I was, their tendency to hire and promote members of their same sort of privilege networks and the devastating impact that their decisions, those biased decisions can have on aspiring women and other marginalized group. So the intent is positive, the outcome not so much. And it is based on the rules of the game that exists. And we're hoping that with this book and with discussions and dialogue and further research that we can begin to, 
to restate those rules and maybe create a whole new rule book based on business outcomes rather than personal motives. You'd also talked about things like, you know, the use of sports metaphors and, you know, the, 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 the talk around the, the, the water cooler that, um, you know, may not be women's interests. And so they may not uh, know what the, you know, the latest, you know, what happened over the weekend with the various sports teams, uh, you know, the locker room, the golf, you know, and, and also social events that, you know, women, because of some of the home responsibilities, aren't always necessarily able to, you know, join the group for a beer after work or, you know, a, a scotch or whatever. And so, you know, again, it goes back to the four biases and some of the influence of that too. So, um, absolutely. And so, we, we, you and I haven't discussed this to this point, um, but exclusion is one of the key issues that relates to the bias and that type role bias and, and the, the question of whether women can and should be forced to participate in what are otherwise exclusive male networks and, and any tendency not to adopt and play in those networks to go golfing, to go to the hockey game, to do other, uh, can be career limiting. And, and it really is at the end of the day. Um, again, if we get into a like hiring, like situation, you're going to hire those people that you know, you socialize with, that you're comfortable with and who you, you actually know, you know, it's impossible to promote someone or to, to give them an opportunity if you don't know who they are and what they do you will tend to go to your, your exclusive networks. And, and given that women, for all the reasons we've just discussed, are often excluded and on occasionally self-exclusion uh, comes into play, uh, it becomes extremely difficult for them to, to compete with uh, men for those next positions. Absolutely. I know it's interesting because in the recruitment podcast, you know, I talk about find fit, you know, and, and here we're talking about fit. You know, mm-hmm. and um, uh, yeah, that that importance of being cognizant of what's actually happening as we're mm-hmm. um, engaging in these processes of things like recruitment and understanding our biases and and um, making sure that they don't get in the way. And that's why I'm so glad that you're doing the work that you're doing. It's really interesting, Susan, because I've always talked about that too, that, you know, it's all about fit. We need fit. We need people who are going to fit. And maybe we need to rethink that. Maybe it's people who don't fit because the people who fit are the ones that, again, we tend to align with and understand and appreciate based on our own value systems and our own experiences. Mm -hmm. And that we have to rethink what that fit is, or at least redefine where they're fitting. And I think that becomes will uh, certainly for for many of the males that we've talked about uh, will require them to step out of their comfort zones and to hire people who they might not have otherwise thought fit. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting perspective and I think one that uh, warrants some further exploration. Absolutely. The, you know, the whole importance of diversity and you can't fix what you don't see or at least acknowledge. So I think this is really important and important that we're talking about this a lot more and it's going to involve changed behavior but I know it's not all about just the guys and I think it was in the podcast that you recorded with Sheila Cummins in her the road to seven series if people are interested in and taking a look at at her podcast series it was called why women are held back from leadership and you talked about women's frequent need for perfection before they put something out that gets on their way that there's often a general lack of confidence in themselves and in the systems that they work within and a need for women to overcome the strong tendency to underestimate their abilities and their contributions. Want to talk a little bit more about that? Or is that pretty... (laughs) Well, no, I I think it's an important one and we'll get into some of the the issues around that as we move forward. Um, One of the things we wanted to do when we wrote the book was not to create a self-help book for women. Again, Mm -hmm. this was not trying to teach women how they could conform to the game that they don't want to play in order to advance their careers. And ultimately, we wanted to look at this, the the systemic issues that could be addressed. Um, But within that, we realized that um, 
there are social socialized tendencies that women have adopted uh and this is from very very early you know playground periods mm -hmm. blue and pink behaviors that cause them a to be a little less assertive in their expectations and their desires uh, from a career standpoint and, and resisting the temptation to raise their hands when maybe they would like to. And we've all seen the, the, the wonderful uh, uh, you know, anecdote about the fact that uh, women will uh, men will raise their hands for a new job if they own, uh, you know, if they, they can tick 60% of the boxes on the requirements for the position mm -hmm. where women need to be 90% or more. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and that, and there's a wonderful, wonderful story in the book of one of our, my former colleagues who um, advertised a position uh, based on a new restructuring that would create, well, the restructuring would create two senior positions. And within six minutes, and she, she confirms that within six minutes, that there were three men at her door saying they wanted to be considered for the job. And one of them actually stated right then and there that he should just receive the job. There was no need to look to anyone else because he was perfectly qualified. And the, the women uh, in her department and within the organization who were equally qualified, of course, sent an email and wanted to understand whether they were right for the position and what were the requirements were and all of those other elements. And this is a pretty good indicator, again, of this assertiveness that men adopt in this likability quotient that women have where they're afraid to assert themselves. Now, the, the reality is, is two things here, is that one, women need to... Uh, be more assertive and recognize they don't have to be perfect to pursue the role. Um, you know, you can grow into the role. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that it's not just uh, a lack of confidence in self. Again, most women will be willing to compete if they feel that they're competing on equal grounds. It's they have distrust in the system. So if you've not received those advancements in the past or promotions based on what it is you're doing, um, you're going to feel that you have to absolutely blow away the qualifications for a job to get the job. So it's up to the organizations not to require or wait for women to put their hands up on occasion. This is part mm -hmm. of the, the changing mindsets is we need to recognize the tendencies that women have and the socialized tendencies and as leaders reach down and pull them up Mm. not wait for them to necessarily raise their hands. Yeah. Um, and I think those are sort of some of the behaviors that we need to begin to identify and to adopt if we really do believe in gender equity and, and enhancing the opportunities for the best possible candidates. Wow. Yeah, that's wonderful. We're going to start getting quickly into um, the CAPS framework that is a large part of the work that you're doing now, but I just wanted to use one more example because it was so important to me. Mm -hmm. um, and you talked about how we tend to end our sentences with rising intonation or what you call upspeak. Mm -hmm. And that that can easily be interpreted as a question or at the very least a lack of confidence um, on the speaker's part. And it also leaves the door wide open for someone else in the room to interpret, qualify, restate, and ultimately lay claim to the original idea. I know I've heard that in my own voice and in my own behavior. And actually it was because of the podcast that I finally went and got some voice coaching because it's so critical that our voices are strong and that you know we, we, we pay attention, that we do our the own self-reflection about what I could be doing um, differently. So I just wanted to put that little nugget in there because um, it's something that I, I watch and I continue to watch and now I hear it in others. And so I was glad that you actually noted that in your book. Well, that's an important one because that is the uh, basis for the stolen idea syndrome that mm -hmm. so many women go through where they'll raise a point, make an observation, make a suggestion, um, but will present it as they've been socialized to do as a collaborative, as, as a discussion point. Yeah. And ultimately, uh, it will be a male who asserts and says, yes, we need to do this and ends up taking ownership of the idea. So uh, it was Janice Fukakuza, again, who's brilliant, who said she coaches uh, women to talk in a monotone in an environment like that. So, And if they're spoken over, she said, don't stop, just wait. 
and then pick up your sentence from exactly the point you had left it off mm -hmm. to ensure that you have the last word as you move forward. So it is, a, again, a socialized tendency, and it's something that women need to be aware of, hence the coaching, but also that uh, anyone directing the meeting, a senior leader, be it male or female, needs to call out individuals who talk over other people or, or do not give them the opportunity to lay claim to their own ideas. So again, this is part of the, the two-way street. Women need coaching. Um, the leadership needs education around promoting uh, women and giving them the uh, opportunities they need to assert themselves and to advance within those organizations. And I've sure loved it when leaders on my behalf have said yes, and that idea was first presented by, uh, and it's like, thank you. <laughs> and put it in the minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's as a result of the observations in your research that you and your co-author Holly developed the CAPS framework and what you call the new rules. So we're, we're getting into the good stuff. <laughs> We're getting into the happy stuff. Exactly. So CAP stands for Credentials, Adaptability, Profile, and Support. And I would love if we could spend a few moments on each one of these, um, what you mean by these new rules. Sure. So uh, again, the, the CAPS framework, the, the four elements that you just discussed come out of our discussions uh, directly with the leaders. It's based on their feedback and their experiences. So as part of the interview process, once we identified the four big barriers, we asked them, well, how did you successfully navigate those biases to achieve the success mm -hmm. you've uh, achieved? And they consistently um, provided four distinct strategies, things that they had done uh, that helped them overcome the invisible rules and, and uh, the unfortunate, uh, the, the tilted playing field to achieve the success they had. Now, again, sometimes it took longer than it should have and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, took more energy than it might have. But what they identified, and, and as it turns out, they're pretty reasonable antidotes to the barriers themselves, is these four elements. So, CAPS, Credentials, Adaptability, Profile, and Support. Uh, credentials is just a basis that, um, you know, women tend to have greater credentials than men on spe in specific environments. Um, again, men will have general educations, women will often have professional educations as we, um, you know, as they move forward into, into major organizations. Mm -hmm. And virtually every, uh, woman we talked to in, in the leadership group had at least a graduate degree and in many cases, a professional designation on top of that. Mm -hmm. And the issue is pretty simple is credentials, these high professional designations, professional academic credentials give women voice. Mm -hmm. So it gives them instant credibility and a, an expert voice at the table. So this gives them the opportunity to participate in the dialogue because so much of leadership is voice, right? Is, is yeah. who's asserting themselves in other environments. And people are more likely to listen to you when they're perceived as the expert and they're asking you questions. When people seek your input, they're more likely to accept your answers. Mm -hmm. So credentials became a huge component as a jumping off point for, for many of uh, the women that we talked to. The second is this adaptability, and this is a tough one because this is in some cases innate, but mostly a learned ability to walk that line, the tightrope we talked about, mm -hmm. um, and to be likable, that is communal in some environments, but to assert themselves more aggressively in others and certainly on a situational basis. So it's this ability to demonstrate when necessary the leadership qualities that we typically associate as masculine mm -hmm, or accept mm -hmm. as masculine to assert, to be aggressive, but not to be emotional. Mm -hmm. So the adaptability is, a, is important. The third was the profile. And it's again, there's this tendency for women to want to put their head down to work really hard and hope that they're recognized for the work that they're doing and, and promoted appropriately. Well, again, as we've talked about that, that's not how the system tends mm -hmm. to work. People need to know who you are before they can offer you the stretch targets or the promotion. Mm -hmm. So the women we talked about, and, and this tended to happen over time, um, uh, 
did actually cultivate some kind of strong professional or personal brand and tends to have start at the departmental level and then you hope that it moves on to an organizational level and then professional level and and if you're lucky maybe cultural level and some mm-hmm. of the women who are in the book are are icons uh, in the Canadian business and social environments uh, who managed to do that and and the stronger your brand it becomes a positive sort of self-perpetuating thing. You know, the mm-hmm. more people know you, the more opportunities you're going to get, which of course increases the amount that people know you and understand you. And ultimately <clears throat> it will help you attract a sponsor, which leads to the fourth component is support. And again, there's this tendency, a uh, socialized tendency for women, especially young moms to wanna to do it all, to be the perfect mother, to be the perfect employee, to be the perfect spouse, to be, and as a number of our, our leaders told us is at some point you have to recognize you can't be all those things. You can have it all. You just can't do it all. And that requires mm-hmm. support. So strong levels of family support, um, organizational support. So pick your employer appropriately. So they believe in equity and have the programs that support those things. Uh, your partner, often the women we talked to either had a stay-at-home spouse or a spouse that had more flexibility than they did to adopt many of the responsibilities responsibilities that would be traditionally female about managing the, behavior, uh, the, the household. And then the last one in the, and a fundamental one is sponsors mm-hmm. is finding someone who actually believes in you and takes a, a formal interest in your career and your success. Those things collectively create an environment where women can succeed. And uh, that was the feedback that they received. And, and then when, we took that all back to them before we published the book and they went, Oh, this is great. I wish I'd known this stuff 30 years ago. It would have made my career a lot easier. So um, it tends to, to be well, uh, well regarded at this point. And and a lot of women are, uh, we've been told uh, adopting new behaviors, Mm -hmm. uh, subtle ones, but based on the model. And that's very meaningful to us. Yeah. Thank you. Now, You've already said the words, but I think it was Ruth Brothers who mm-hmm. said, when it comes to tackling gender inequity, women need coaching and men need education. Um, can you talk a little bit more about this? I think it's really important. Yeah, I, and I think we've touched on all of these elements uh, a little bit, but if we can bring them together, it'd be helpful. So again, as I mentioned, we didn't want to write a self-help book. This was not a book to say to women, you know, the, the world's unfair, too bad. Here's all the things you need to do to address that situation, to, to try and conform uh, to some sense of uh, existing infrastructure or whatever. Um, we wanted to, to look at this more systemically and to understand ultimately um, what needed to change to ensure that we had gender equity. And what we did find out, and I thought it was a great line from, from uh, Ruth was, you know, women do need coaching. So they need to recognize the rules as they exist um, so that they're at least aware of a, what they could conceivably be doing differently, um, but at least what people are expecting of them or it, how the, the senior group are interpreting their actions or lack of actions. So that's a good thing. It's just an awareness building thing. But the more meaningful element is that we think nothing changes until men decide it needs to change. They're in charge of the patriarchy right now. They're in charge of the power structures. They dominate the C-suites, they dominate the boards. So until they change their perspectives and their behaviors and the organization uh, practices and, and policies, then it becomes extremely difficult for us to achieve gender equity. And so that's what we're hoping to do. As I've mentioned before, is um, I think it's largely an awareness issue. Is mm-hmm. men simply aren't aware of their their biases and the impact that the behaviors that those biases create um, are having on organizations and things like gender equity. So if we can make them aware. Um, mm-hmm. We can begin to to drive new behaviors, new policies, new practices. And the reality is, is that, you know, gender equity isn't a women's problem or issue. If women could have fixed it by themselves, they would have fixed it a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. So if it's going to happen, this is a business problem, an opportunity that men and women can and must tackle together. 
And so from my perspective, that's, that's all about awareness. Perfect. Thank you. And do you actually give some ideas of things that we could be doing to move the dial forward? Uh, I picked a few. Um, one, a progressive employer treats most leaves, including maternity leave, as a manageable investment rather than as a costly inconvenience. That's a cultural change. That's an attitude change. Well, and there are a bunch of them. Um, but I think that the issue, and, and we can go through those one by one, or what we did discover, because this was, again, part of the book, is we, we identified the, the biases. Mm -hmm. We identified the strategies on an individual basis. But then we talked to the leaders and said, what fundamentally do organizations need to be doing perhaps using the, the CAPS framework as a starting point to create better, more inclusive environments where gender equity, again, becomes a business imperative rather than mm -hmm. a, a okay. social justice discussion. And yes, so we need all of the standard, you know, HR practices and you wanna be progressive and you wanna bundle your programs and you wanna do that. But they came up with three key deliverables. One was if you want to eliminate gender equity, inequity, in the, you need to provide uh, equal pay. So fix the pay system. It's very mm -hmm. simple to do. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, we've heard stories of CEOs have gone home with spreadsheets and just circled all the red, red circled all the inequitable treatment of individuals. And lo and behold, all the, the red circles tend to belong to women. Just adjust it, fix mm -hmm. it. It's cost the mm -hmm. business, but it can be done. When you have equal pay, people can stop looking over their shoulders and wondering how much they're being <clears throat> penalized or, or how inequitable their treatment is. So I right. now have a sense of worth. You know, pay is the, is the proxy that we use to, to judge a person's value within a business organization. So mm -hmm. if you value them, treat them equally. Yeah. The second was promotional opportunities. So again, de-bias those promotional opportunities based on, on the enhanced awareness that we just talked about and make sure that you're not giving anyone a leg up based on, you know, a perception of right. the ideal candidate. Yeah. Test that. So bring diverse candidates to the, op uh, the, the table every time that you're looking at these things mm -hmm. and de-bias the language and components around those performance reviews that, that get them there. And then the third thing was this idea of flexibility without guilt. So, you know, we've seen this, the, one of the learnings from the COVID program is that uh, people want flexibility and, and lo and behold, they can deal with it now. We have the technology, we've sort of managed the social implications of those elements um, and that people don't need to be in the office with FaceTime, it's all about productive time. And men want this as much as women do. But mm -hmm. historically, we've created leave programs as accommodations to women. You know, that it was a clear indicator that they needed some kind of additional help to manage the, the complexities of their lives where men didn't need those things. And in fact, if men took those programs, if in many cases, it was a career killer. You know, they, they, they were there, they were allowed mm -hmm. to notionally, but would never do it. And so what we need to do now is to create environments where these programs are presented as work-life integration, work-life balance programs for, for uh, regardless of gender, regardless of situation. As mm -hmm. long as you're performing and getting your work done, that should be all that really matters. And even as an extension of that, a couple of uh, women said, you know, we should mandate uh, leaves for men on the birth of their children, mm -hmm. A, so that they're there to help, B, that they understand the demands that are being placed, dual demands on anyone yeah. trying to manage family and yeah. uh, work. And then three is to understand how difficult it is to reintegrate to the office, even after a, a month or six weeks, out of sight, out of mind. So uh, once men understand that on a personal level, then they're more likely as future leaders to um, be respectful of the demands that are being placed on all employees, regardless of gender. So those were the three dominant elements. And then the, there's a fourth one, which we could talk about, which is quotas. Is it time to start saying no, if we're going to have balance within organizations that we need to uh, 
balance our boards and balance our C-suites in a hurry, mm -hmm. create mm -hmm. the critical mass that's necessary to demonstrate on a cultural basis or emotional basis and a business basis that equity is a good thing. It, it certainly raises the question, yes. Mm -hmm. Senior leaders walking the talk, demonstrating rather than simply articulating a commitment to gender equity is really what you've just talked about. Um, and we change culture by doing things differently. Um, and again, you've just given us some really good examples of how that can happen. Um, and change is going to cause disruption, you know, even if, if it doesn't go to the end of the, you know, to the spectrum end of, of things like quota. Um, and that's a good thing. Any other can, last can, thoughts before I, I move on to some other areas? Well, uh, I think, uh, you know, you're so right about leadership. And I don't want to oversimplify this stuff. There are demands. But, um, you know, my PhD is in leadership. My career has been in leadership. And I've come to the conclusion that the single answer to any business question is leadership. If you show me an effective organization, I'll show you a highly functional leadership group. If you show me a dysfunctional organization, I'll show you an inept leadership group. So it's pretty simple is that leadership has the capacity through its actions and the adopted policies and practices to change an organization immediately. If you want gender equity and you're committed to it as an organization, you can make it happen overnight. It's just a function of will. And, and I think you'll find if, if you have a, an organization that espouses gender equity, but if you look at their annual report and all of the C-suite are white men and the board is the same, then you know that they're not committed to gender equity. If you do find a, an organization with a board that is diverse and a C-suite that's diverse, you'll find a diverse organization. It's really not that complex. And to your point, um, people say culture is a difficult thing to change. It's not. You know, from an anthropological perspective, culture is just the sum total of how we do things around here. And if you want to change culture, do something differently. The minute you do something differently, you change the culture. As you say, it can be disruptive, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And so this is why we do talk about in the book the need for leadership to step up. Um, this is not a, a grassroots issue. You can't build diversity within an organization from the bottom up. You have to build it from the top down. Speaking of the top, you also talked about the critical importance of board support. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that one? Well, again, uh, it sets the tone. So um, if you have a diverse board, you will have a diverse organization. And the difficulty is that you right now, the board positions being what they are, if ever there was an exclusive environment, that's it. Um, we hear, and I've heard this over and over again from board chairs to say, Paul, of course we believe in diversity, but I have a fiduciary obligation to hire the best possible candidate. And invariably in their world, the best possible candidate is white male and from the same privileged social environment, social networks, business networks is the individual. Mm -hmm. So you have this perpetuation of the patriarchy. And this is why we did get into the, the notions of quotas is we asked a bunch of the women, is it time? And of course, they're all reluctant to say, yes, we should have quotas for board participation, although some governments impose them around the world and they seem to work just fine because that no one wants to be perceived as the individual who was brought on as a token based on. Yeah. And that's not what we're talking about at all when we talk about quotas. What we're doing is talking about bringing in highly qualified candidates who until now have been denied the access to the board because of the exclusive you know, sort of mindsets and networks that have been in place. Mm -hmm. So you're not settling for second best candidates in any way, shape or form. You're in fact, just going out and doing a broader search and a more thorough search to find highly qualified candidates who have otherwise been denied those positions. And we see the impact, you know, the, the studies show at 30%, if you have critical mass, you will have a fundamentally different board and you will have different ideas. And the last one I'll point out as a function of that is 
you know, despite our discussions around risk aversion socialized is that uh, studies show that females on boards tend to be less risk averse than their male colleagues at that level, largely because of super competence. Let's face it, if you're a woman and you're on a major board, you're pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. You've uh, negotiated and navigated your way to the top, but women tend to be more informed at board levels as well. They do their readings and they do their elements and they commit to the delivery of their responsibilities. And so the risks that they're willing to take are highly informed risks. Mm. So once you have that dynamic on the board, you have that creative abrasion, you're gonna have far better discussions and far better outcomes. Wow, I'm glad I asked the question. (laughs) Thank you. Now I know your book focuses on gender equity, but it's really, it incorporates the full broader intersectional candidates. It's the, it's the full, full realm. Um, and you talk about differences of degree with regard to the challenges that, that individuals face. And you, you talk about the less like you are to the white older male, the more you need these strategies. And the, the CAPS framework is actually very applicable much more broadly than just um, the gender question. We think so. Um, and so, uh, you know, when I, when I decided I was going to do the PhD, I wanted to do broader inclusion. And I thought that was important. And, and I had a very thoughtful advisor who said, Paul, you know, the most important thing about a PhD is picking a topic that's small enough that you can get it done. And that's why we focused on one small component of broader inclusion. But I have heard from a number of people who have read the book, um, including men, that the CAPS framework and the biases in many cases um, extend beyond gender. Uh, As you say, any marginalized group, anyone who is not white and male uh, within the current power structure probably faces those biases and therefore needs to adopt appropriate strategies to navigate those biases. And based on the feedback we had, we, we tried to bring in 13 of the women in the book identified as, as uh, something other than uh, white. Um, they were very clear to say, look, they don't see that there are additional biases related to their intersectionality, but they saw that the biases were amplified. And by extension, the need to adopt the CAPS framework was amplified. Uh, And so uh, again, to the extent that you are different, you add a qualifier. So Mm -hmm. whether you're of color, whether you're indigenous, whether you're black, um, whether you're disabled, if you uh, identify uh, differently from a uh, sexuality standpoint, if you're trans, every time you add one of those elements, then, then the amplification becomes mm. greater and the need to adopt the, the CAPS framework becomes more meaningful. And we actually hope to, to, to test that and actually come back with an answer from a data perspective, an academic perspective. But for the time being, anecdotally, uh, it seems to work. And my wife, for one, has handed the book to a couple of her male colleagues who mm-hmm. um, are are feeling marginalized within their environment just as again a coaching opportunity to say mm-hmm. don't read woman read different and yeah. uh, see if the book works so uh yeah. we we hope that that it's meaningful and and again this is one of the reasons we're hoping that males will read the book um to better understand some of their mm-hmm. biases and how they may act differently both as prospective leaders but uh as leaders when the time comes Perfect. Thank you. Uh, one, well, a couple of last things before we close. Um, and it was in the podcast with Sheila Cummins again on the Road to Seven series. You talked about how, and I think you've mentioned it actually earlier in, in the podcast, how a number of women, due to the frustration of being passed over uh, for both promotions and growth opportunities, choose to become their own CEO by starting their own businesses. So this is for the entrepreneurs listening. Um, It's the only way that they've been able to find professional and career fulfillment. Do you see this trend continuing? And I think I've probably answered my own question with, you know, not if (laughs) organizations start to. 
Well, it's a million dollar question, isn't it? And you know, I think it, the starting point here is that, you know, let's face it, Susan, it's pretty absurd that you and I are actually having this conversation in 2021, right? So essentially all of the leaders that we talked to voiced their disappointment and real frustration with the pace of change that they've seen over their careers. Most would have mm -hmm. expected to see way more progress over the last 25 years or more, right? And so that now leads us to your question, which is what will the rate of future change be? And I think really what it will come down to is it will depend on how willing business leaders and male leaders in particular are to change those attitudes and behaviors that we've discussed, right? So increasingly we're seeing data that suggests that diverse organizations outperform homogeneous organizations on a sustained basis, especially when it comes to things like innovation, which is all very reasonable. It's extremely difficult to compete in an increasingly global and competitive mm -hmm. business environment if you deny yourself access to the deepest possible talent pool. So once organizations, and back to our discussion, boards and shareholders in particular, understand that gender equity enhances business performance, we'll see things change. And I think things will change pretty quickly. But until that happens, the pipeline will remain toxic. Women will continue to face these biases they'll continue to be frustrated. And in many cases, they will opt to leave mm -hmm. traditional business environments to, to find their, their sense of business success elsewhere. And just on that, I will note that three or four of the highest profile leaders in Canada and people we talked to, Christine McGee at Sleep Country Canada, Annette Vershuren of Home Depot um, and some others um, all fit into that category. They plateaued at mid-career. And would they have succeeded? Of course, they're remarkable women. But they said, not, not doing it here. And they went off and started their own thing. And they've done pretty darn well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I don't think it's either or. Um, mm -hmm. But as long as organizations continue to marginalize some of their best talent, they're going to see it leak. They're going to see yeah. people move out the door. And uh, um, much to their detriment, but maybe to our economy's um, yeah. benefit right yeah. is to have Too these high-performance, committed, uh, remarkable women uh, starting organizations and treating those organizations or, or creating cultures within those organizations that they would have liked to have seen in the organizations yeah. they departed from. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that we see this entrepreneurship. We just would love to see it for the right reasons. Exactly. Yeah. And look at how wonderfully they're modeling I was going to ask you about any other last nuggets, but I'm I'm going to I'm going to change that, and I want to learn about this new research project that you've got. Your, your new the book that you're working on. It's it's uh, quite different than the other work that you've been doing, or maybe not. It is and it isn't. Um, I I think we're looking for inspiration, and it is it is a fundamental leadership book. Is um, it, it, but it's also a passion project is I, I grew up in a fighting household. My dad was actually a professional street fighter who wanted me to be a fighter, but I just had this real aversion to getting punched in the face and I still do. So um, I didn't want to be a fighter, but I, I learned to appreciate boxing and, and both the science and the brutality of it. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to write a book uh, about boxing that sort of looked at 12 rounds of a championship fight, given the numerology, you know, 12 hours in a cycle, 12 months in a year, start to finish, to use that as a metaphor for life and to track a particular boxer's life through those 12 vignettes, those rounds, so that we, we had this element. And I said, all I needed to do was to find a boxer. And serendipity, I, I happened to, uh, we hired one um, when I was back at Eckler. And uh, we just started talking and, and uh, he's a remarkable man, the sweetest, uh, most spiritual man I've ever met, which of course is the interesting thing of this juxtaposition is mm -hmm. how does someone who's that sweet make their living um, trying to, to knock his opponent senseless? <laughs> And, and then the trials and tribulations that he went through uh, racially and uh, socioeconomically and other elements to, uh, to persevere and, and to become this champion basically through will. And so I think there's a great story there. I think it's a, it's a human interest story. I think it's a perseverance story. I think it's a leadership story and it's an inspiration. So um, 
we're looking to put that together. Uh, we're just finishing up and it's been great joy. I've got to, to uh, interview six or seven world champions that fought with Barrington along those days and their perspectives and where they are in life. And, and uh, so we're, we're hoping to finish the research over the next, uh, over the summer and then uh, have the draft ready Jan one. So uh, not related to this book in any way, shape or form, but certainly related to humanity and leadership and inspiration, which uh, we hope to bring to, to your readers at some point. So maybe in a year from now, we can have another webcast. Do you have a, do you another, have a, I'd love that. Do you have a title for it yet? Well, um, we're playing with it. Uh, his nickname uh, was Tiga, uh, which is Jamaican for tiger. Tiga, Tiga's tail, his dad called him because he was always the last one out the room. And so I just <laughs> thought we'd play on it with instead of T-A-I-L, it'll be T-A-L-E. And, uh, you know, the, the, the inspirational story of a remarkable man, Tiga's tail. Wow. So well, we'll, we'll see we'll how keep, it plays out. We'll keep posted. And I shouldn't steal your any last nuggets from you. Anything that you'd last like to, to share with us and our, our listeners? Yeah, well, I think if you're an aspiring leader, whether you're male or female, the, the key here is find a sponsor. Find someone in a position of authority who takes an honest-to-goodness interest in your career success. Uh, there's a wonderful saying in business that prospective leaders don't actually climb the corporate ladder. They're dragged up that ladder by the scruffs of their necks, and they're dragged up that by people in positions of power who want them to succeed and will help to ensure that they do. And that is a byproduct of the CAPS leadership model. So get your credentials adapt situationally, build your profile, and you'll attract a sponsor. That's your path to leadership. And if you're an organization who's committed to gender equity, then supercharge your sponsorship programs. Start identifying high-performance people who fit outside of your comfort zone and sponsor them. That will get you the, uh, the equity that you need as you move forward, and it'll help to ensure that uh, you have the best possible organization and the best possible solutions as you seek to compete uh, in this very demanding world. So that's my last nugget. Wow, and a wonderful tying together of all the threads. Thank you. So to our listeners, um, I'm sure hoping that you, um, that Paul, that you and others continue to shine the light on this incredibly critical topic for all of us and that the changes that need to occur indeed occur and that it won't be necessary for our daughters to contend with gender equity or our granddaughters. I, because I reflect back on those, that telecommunication union uh, 45 years ago now I hope that the insights that you shared through the research and the framework become the fulcrum for real change and a recognition of the value and finally dealing with the invisible rules. Also the title of Paul and Holly's book available on Amazon and at your local bookstores. If you're interested in connecting with Paul, all of his contact information is on the show or the show notes page for the, the podcast. And Paul, I understand that you're going to be on the speakers circuit soon, as soon as we're, we're able to attend events um, post-pandemic with things starting to open. Um, Paul, thank you for your interest, your commitment to make the invisible visible, to advocate for change and to provide your own insights into what we and our organizations need to do to change this reality. It's been an absolute de delight um, being able to connect with you to learn more about you, your book, and also what you're up to and some of the future stuff that you've, you've got planned. Susan, well, thank you very much for your continued leadership and support. Uh, we very much appreciate your time and your energy and your commitment. So thank you for letting us share the message with your listeners today. We hope, Paul and I, that you have found our time together today interesting and fun to listen to thank you paul uh, for being here i'm going to be here again next week and i hope that you will join me as you you guessed it dare to soar time to fly paul thank you again for making the time for sharing for writing your book and uh can't wait to actually hear you at some of those sessions that i know will be upcoming 
uh, probably in the fall, realistically. Um, across Canada, across the United States, do you, do you know yet? Uh, we have a number booked. It's across Canada. It's primarily a Canadian book, but uh, uh, we're focusing on uh, the academic in environments and women's groups for the time being. So uh, we're okay. looking forward to getting the word out and, and it, with any luck, we'll actually be able to sit in front of a live audience and discuss the books face-to-face. Uh, uh, -face. So oh, again, I thank you very much for the opportunity. Won't that be great? Well, keep an eye open. Paul Harrietha, The Invisible Rules. Thanks again, everybody. Time to fly. Thank you again, Paul. Bye for now. Well, we've reached our destination for today. Time to lower those wheels and prepare for landing. Thank you for joining me. If I said something that resonated with you, please subscribe to the podcast and to share it with others. It would be awesome if you also took the time to provide a review or whatever your favorite social media sites are. If you have a question or an area that you hope I'll cover in a future session, please send me a note either to my website, www.effectingchangefromwithin.com or to my email, susangene at gmail.com. I look forward to our next time together. In the meantime, soar high. I believe you can. Susan signing off. Thanks again for joining me.